Hey, it's Tom Maley, and welcome into Episode 8 of Write You a Song, a podcast dedicated to introducing you to the folks behind some of Nashville's biggest hits. If this is your first time listening, you can do a dive into our back episodes, which include interviews with writers like Brett Warren, Jeffrey Steele, Tim Nichols, Bryce Long, Brett James, Liz Rose, and Ashley McBride, many of whom came to us courtesy of Songwriter City. A Songwriter City is basically this podcast except live and in person on stage with multiple songwriters performing their songs in front of large parties and corporate events. It's a really cool, one-of-a-kind chance to get the stories behind some of the biggest, most memorable songs in country music from the people who wrote them, and it's unlike any kind of entertainment you could otherwise book. Look into it more at songwritercity.com. Now, our guest this month is longtime Nashville songwriter Lee Thomas Miller, who's written huge hits for Trace Adkins, Brad Paisley, the Osborne Brothers, among others. Lee is also one of the songwriting community's most vocal advocates for songwriter royalties, which have eroded considerably in the digital age. And if that's an issue that you think you'd like to know more about, I invite you to stick around after our main interview for a brief podcast after the podcast, in which Mr. Miller kind of breaks down the issue facing songwriters. And if you're a music lover... These are issues that should concern you, so I encourage you to listen. It's only about 10 extra minutes, and it will immediately follow the closing credits of today's podcast. Now, on with Lee Thomas Miller. Mr. Miller, thank you for joining us on Write You a Song. How are you doing? Oh, good. Happy to be here. Uh, previous songwriters that we've spoken with, a lot of them kind of had the same story. They came to Nashville originally to be an artist, and, and then the songwriting thing kind of happened. You have a little bit kind of a different um, origin story. You came to town to be a touring band member? That was the goal. I grew up, um, I was just never satisfied. I would kind of learn an instrument, and then that would point me towards another instrument, so I would get one of those and try that for a while, and and I was intrigued with, you know, the guy in the band that would stand over on the side and play a bunch of different instruments. And so that's kind of what I thought that I would do. Um, and I decided that I would make fiddle my main thing because it felt like there were fewer of them to compete with. Mm-hmm. And now the problem was the ones that were here were unbelievable. You know, Nashville has the greatest musicians in the world. So whatever you choose, you're up against the, the best there is. Um, but yeah, so that was ultimately what I came to town to do. Thought I would just get a gig playing on the road for artists, and uh, that was the dream. And that led quickly to a producer put me in a little group that he was trying to get a record deal, which uh, was great. So then that got me writing, and that led to writing with better people, and uh, ultimately led to writing with people who were having hit songs and introduced me to publishers. And uh, a publisher came to me and said, I don't think you're an artist, but uh, I think you could write songs. And I said, I'm in. Let's do it. <laughs> Is it true, though, that like you got a, a, a three-day gig with, with Tom T. Hall and then you were, you were sent home? <laughs> well, yeah, it wasn't supposed to be a three-day gig. Uh, I moved to Nashville June 1st, and on July 3rd, I left town on the bus as Tom T. Hall's fiddle player, and he fired me on July 6th. What, what, what did he fire you for? Oh, I was green and young and nervous and, you know, had never done anything. And they weren't very patient. <laughs> but there there was that. But uh, we did a run, and I didn't play very well, and that was it. He always seemed like such a nice guy. Was he Was he nice when he fired you? <laughs> um, well, I saw him uh, about 20 years later, and uh, 
And my wife said, if you don't go over there and talk to him, I'm going to. And I <laughs> said, uh, he's kind of always just seemed kind of grumpy and hard to approach. But I did. I walked over and reintroduced myself and told him the story. And he kind of cringed because I think he thought I was going to yell at him or something. Mm-hmm. And I laughed and I said, man, that was the greatest thing that ever happened. It, it led me to my career. And and he laughed and said, well, he says, I've never fired anybody in 40 years, but I never hired anybody either. I had people to do all that. so, And that was true. That's how that went down. Well, how did that affect your ego, though? Because you were a good musician. You, you uh, have a, a college degree in music theory. and I'm sure that you had a lot of confidence going in. Did that uh, knock you sideways at all? Um, well, I think you can grow up anywhere in the country and play in bars. And it's easy to be a big fish in a small pond. Um, you know, I, I was classically trained, uh, violin and piano. But what does that even mean in the grand scheme of things? You know, and I I certainly was aware of my own shortcomings. I was also aware that any nice thing anybody said to me in any bar in Kentucky about how good I was. Well, at that point, I'd already been driving to Nashville and just going in the bars and listening to just listen to the musicians that didn't have a gig who were waiting to get discovered Mm -hmm. and realized they were better than I would ever be. And they weren't even working yet, you know. So, I mean, I was pretty self-aware of how hard this was going to be. I mean, certainly it wasn't good for my confidence, but, you know, I'm 21. I I had just gotten here. And honestly, it was uh, even to to go do the audition and and get the gig, because it was like a multi, like two different auditions I had to go through just to get that gig. I knew I could do the gig. Right. That really wasn't, uh, you know. I don't know. I, I felt like at the time, as heartbreaking, it was embarrassing because, you know, I had to call back my family and say, hey, I got fired, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> which begged the question, what did you do? What happened? You know, I mean, none of that was fun, but I, I was aware then that probably the greatest, best educations I ever had was my brief stint with Tom T. Hall. I mean, it literally was welcome to the big leagues, kid. Yeah, it kind of, no. it, it sounds to me like it maybe woke you up a little bit. And, and thankfully you had, like you said, the, the, the self-awareness to realize, you know, this isn't uh, a, a testament to my overall skills. It's that I got a lot to learn. Well, I think it was that. I think it was a testament to my overall skills, but mm. I also had a lot to learn. But, you know, you don't get called up from AAA to the bigs and give up five home runs in your first game and then quit and go home. I mean, it doesn't mean that you can't play. It just right. means you got to. You know, you got a lot to learn. You got to work harder. You got to. And I was very. A lot of people come to Nashville with this attitude like, I want to give this a year, and if something doesn't happen, I'll go home. And um, I never had that. I I said, I may starve to death, but it'll be on the streets of Nashville. Whatever was going to happen was going to happen here. I was never going home. There's no plan B. There was never a plan B. I don't think there can be a plan B. I mean,. I've been in this town almost 30 years, and I, I tell people now, I'm like, if if your deal is you're going to give it X amount of time, and if it doesn't work, you'll go back and do plan B. You need to go ahead and do plan B. You know, there, there can't be, you know, I, I, I had some older cats. I've heard them tell kids, uh, some of the people I look up to, I've heard them tell people, if you can envision yourself doing anything in the world besides music, go do that. Anything else that you can be happy doing, that you can imagine, just go do that because you don't want it bad enough. 
you've got to be all in a thousand percent. Thousand percent. You went to Nashville as a musician, not as a songwriter. But did you know even back then that songwriting was something that you could maybe do, or was that an undiscovered skill until you were challenged to to become one? Well, from the time I started playing. I, you know, I wrote, I didn't take it serious, uh, the book or anything like that about it. I just, you listen to what you love on the radio and you, you try to write something like it and you make it rhyme and you, you give it melody. And then, um, you know, and then I went through school where I, I studied the greats, the, the Mozarts and the Chopins. And, and I was fascinated. I was fascinated with orchestration and theory and, and the math of music. And then, you know, there uh, you learn personal taste comes into play. I mean, there's a lot of the classics that the composers I don't, I don't like. And then there's some that I love. You, you discover who Mozart was a melody guy, you know, melody. I mean, he was hooky before hooky. <laughs> and, you know, I, I discovered that those are the people that I loved. And then, I started realizing that of what I love in the history of country music, it was the it was the guys that told the better stories. Mm-hmm. I loved anything that just said something, or if it said it a little abstract. I never was a pop music person because they didn't say anything. I always said a melody can't be good enough to say something stupid. You know, I want I want tell me something. Yeah. So all of that was was shaping who I was as a songwriter, but I wasn't really chasing that per se. And I remember in college, there were some guys in my little garage band and, and we would try to write. Same thing, you know, just trying to figure it out. So there was a, a book of songs that I had when I came that I never mentioned to anybody. But then when you start working for a project and you start meeting producers and then start writing for myself, trying to be an artist and, you know, get a little bit more serious. But I never really had a focus until I was writing with the people, that, the professionals, the guys that only did that for a living. Mm-hmm. And I realized pretty quickly that of the guys that had publishing deals and were having things on the radio and having hits, there was nothing I was going to bring them that they didn't already know. You know, I wasn't going to dazzle anybody. Nobody's going to come into Nashville, Tennessee with something nobody has ever seen before. Nashville, Tennessee has seen it all. So I wasn't going to reinvent the wheel on the craft of songwriting, but I quickly learned that what the guys that do it every day needed was ideas because they write every day. And I'm the new kid. They're not going to give me their ideas. The only reason that somebody would write with me is because they, I might have an idea that maybe they haven't thought about before. So I immediately began this frantic search for ideas. I would go into one of those meetings. They would say, what do you got? And I would say, how about this? Nah. How about this? Nah. How about this? I already wrote it. How about this? That's terrible. (laughs) How about this? We could, and I remember one time this guy goes, can I see that? And I showed him that. He says, all of these are ideas? I said, yeah. He says, there's thousands. I said, yeah. We can do this all day. <laughs> that had to be and a I validation that, of sorts for you, wasn't it? Well, well I knew that I had his attention, uh-huh. and uh, and I remember when I finally says, and he goes, "Well, I love that," and I remember thinking, "Shiching, that's how this works," because 
now I'm going to have to help him write it, but the pressure is not on me to help him write it. I'm here to learn how to write it. I've already given him something he didn't have before we walked in here today. Then that guy, I became a regular writer of his, and I became a regular writer of his peers. And then the word got out, hey, this kid, he has endless ideas. And that's, that's, that's where it started. I want to revisit you being the idea guy, but just for a second, I want to flip that on its head because this is reminding me of a story that I heard about you and and you were kind of if i understand the story right you became the writer but it was was it jamie johnson that was the idea guy the uh the impetus for for the song in uh in color yeah so uh, what's funny is that's the kind of idea that you would you know you would sell a kidney for you know you're constantly trying to find just a phrase that falls like that and they're hard i mean that that kind of idea is hard and um Jamie had had Song of the Year uh, on Give It Away, George Strait, but he'd written it with Buddy Cannon and uh, Whispering Bill Anderson, Grand Old Opry star Whispering Bill Anderson. Well, you know, it's another beautiful thing about Nashville. You come here, and if you understand the history of the music, you start, you meet these people, and you're in awe of the Grand Old Opry stars, you know. And there's not many of them left. And uh, I had met Bill. I'd written with Bill, and, and I, I know Bill very well. He's a legend. Well, every year they have the, the BMI Music Awards. It's just an industry event where they award the top 50 songs that radio played for that year. So we were sitting there at the BMI Awards, and every year they'll have one screen on the wall where they would just run old pictures of past BMI Awards. And so it's just all these old black and white pictures, and it would be Kitty Wells, and then there would be two people in suits. And it would be Johnny Cash, and it would be some lady in a dress and two men in suits. And it would be industry people from the 60s or the 70s. And uh, I can see Bill across this great big room sitting at his table. And I just said to my wife, I wish we were sitting with Bill Anderson. He's the one person in the room that could tell us who everybody is in the pictures. Like he would know who the business people are. I would find that fascinating. A few days later, I walked over to of uh, the number one party for Jamie Johnson. And I walk up kind of just as the thing's getting ready to start. And all of this is about timing. Everybody's kind of already in having cocktails, but Jamie is standing outside smoking a cigarette. Well, I'd known Jamie since he came to town. Jamie used to sing demos for me. And uh, I walked up and, hey, and howdy. And I said, uh, you seen Bill Anderson lately? And he said, yeah, I talked to him the other day. He's doing good, blah, blah, blah. And I said, ah, so I was talking about him the other day. And all it is, I gave him a quick abbreviated version of that story I just told you. Wish we were sitting close to Bill. He could tell us who was in all the pictures. Jamie takes a long drag off a cigarette, looks at me and says, there's your idea, hoss. You think that's something? You ought to have seen it in color. And I just looked at him, you know, it's just, it had just come from out of nowhere. Whoa. And I said, don't write that with anybody else. And he said, call me tomorrow. (laughs) I said, Grandpa wants this picture here. It's all black and white. And it ain't real clear. Is that you there? He said, yeah, I was a loving. 
Times were tough back in 35 That's me and Uncle Joe just trying to survive A cotton farm in a Great Depression If it looks like we were scared to death Like a couple of kids just trying to save each other You should have seen it in color So I called him, we got on the book, and literally it was like four or five months before we could even, he could even get set down to do it. And of course, I didn't forget the idea, and he's driving in that morning, and he's late, and I'm thinking he's not coming. And he called me, and he said, I'm on my way. And he goes, we have a pretty good idea started, don't we? And I said, which one? And then just test him and he said it and I said yeah which I thought was a good sign that he remembered it too if it looks like we were scared to death like a couple of kids just trying to save each other you should have seen it in color a picture's worth a thousand words but you can't see what those shades of gray keep covered should have seen it in color. Oh my God, what a great story. And the song goes on to be an all-time classic. Unbelievable. That's an all-time classic story. <laughs> There's a million things that could have happened and it would have never it would have never happened. He would have never thought of it. Back to your ideas, and, and you've said you love being uh, an idea guy, and you've kind of already expressed that, and you say that you're obsessed with words. Can you remember... What was the first song uh, that really uh, took off because of your idea? Well, you know, that's tough because my first hit, there were some things that come out. I had some singles that uh, never got out of the 30s. Um, the first thing that worked was uh, The Impossible. The idea was Unsinkable Ships Sink. That's all I had. We're sitting there watching the Titanic in the theater. Really? And, uh, that's really where yeah. it came from? That's where it came from. We were sitting in the theater. This is before phone, iPhones and all that stuff. And it was, I remember at some point in the movie just thinking that phrase, unsinkable ships sink. Now, if you remember, that was a three-hour movie. Mm-hmm. And I was completely distracted for the rest of it because I was trying to make sure I didn't forget that because they come and they go. Why I didn't just get up and go outside and get a pencil and write it down. <laughs> but I didn't. I just sit there saying it over and over in my head. And, um, at some point, I need to go back and see what year that movie or what exactly when that movie was in the theaters versus when the song came out. Because I think I ran that idea by people for a year, but that's all I had. And uh, mutual friends set me and a guy named Kelly Lovelace up to write, and he'd had a couple hits already. And my stuff had stopped in the 30s. Um, but we hit it off. I ran that by and we talked. And from that phrase we came up with the impossible and that changed everything my dad chased monsters from the dark he checked underneath my bed and he could lift me with one arm way up over top his head he could loosen rusty bolts with a quick turn of his wrench he pulled splinters from his hand never even flinched 
In 13 years I'd never seen him cry But the day that Grandpa died I realized Unsinkable ships sink Unbreakable walls break Sometimes the things you think never happen Happen just like that Unbendable steel bends If the fury of the wind is unstoppable I've learned to never underestimate The impossible And that movie came out in 1997, so... Okay, it went number one in fall of 01. Do you remember the first time you heard it on the radio? I don't. Do you still get a rush when, whenever you hear one of your songs on the radio? There's, there's nothing in the world like it. Um, <laughs> to this day, if I'm if I'm going somewhere and I it, something comes on, I, I I turn it up, and if I get to where I'm going, I sit I sit in the car in the parking lot until it's over. I never get out mid song. I listen to it all the way to the end. Are you the type that can enjoy the finished product and and be satisfied with it, or are you the type that listens to it and goes, oh? Depends on if it's a hit. <laughs> there, are, there are things that have been hits that I think have mistakes in them. Maybe, maybe production mistakes more than song mistakes. Um, it's common for an artist to change something. It may be subtle. It may not be subtle. I had a song on Garth Brooks that was a top 20 record called People Loving People. Mm-hmm. And he completely rewrote the bridge. And we didn't even know it. So we heard it, you know. Um, now I, I thought what he did was fine. It didn't. It, it wasn't bad. It was fine. I may think, you know, I'm aware of things, and you're going to miss this. Trace Atkins changed the ages of the children, which I thought created a problem. I thought it was. I thought it created a lyric mistake because our song we said the kids are one's 36 and one's 33. Atkins said one's 36, one's 23. And that makes you think. That makes you stop, and it draws attention to the fact that there's a weird age gap with the children. Oh, okay. It didn't matter. It didn't have any effect whatsoever on what the song did. But, you know, I'll listen to that, and I find it distracting. I I used that song for one of my kids' graduations. I'm one of the millions of people who have used that song for one of their kids' graduation videos, never even picked up on that. And I consider myself kind of a lyric guy, so I don't know if it helps you or not, but didn't notice. (laughs) (laughs) She was staring out the window of their SUV Complaining, saying, I can't wait to turn 18 If the song goes on to be a hit and do stuff, I mean, you... I, I could I could get into almost anything I've ever had out and tell you things that I would do different. That if it goes on to be a hit, then we learn to live with things. <laughs> with things. <laughs> Makes it a little easier. You know, yeah. You're gonna miss this. Are there new artists that come along where you go, ah, I got to get a song with, I got to get a song to them, or I've got to sit down and and see if I can write with them? 
Well, only every artist, you know, <laughs> you're chasing all of them at the same time. Yeah. I mean, that's like, uh, you, you, there's no way to know what new artist is going to happen. You know, I always make a joke that I, I've been doing it a long time and I write with all the new artists and I have an amazing ability to latch onto the ones that are not going to make it. <laughs> so, um, I've been blessed with very good publishers through the years and, and I think one of their jobs is to make sure that I'm in the room with whoever the new kid is and Sony Records signs this new kid. I'm probably going to be in the room with them and you hope that, you know, we strike up a relationship and, and th- th- this kid happens and I can, I can help them write their career. You mentioned Kelly Loveless earlier, who has been a, a longtime songwriting partner with Brad Paisley, and you two and Brad uh, uh, have written some huge hits for Brad, Perfect Storm, The World, I'm Still a Guy. And when I think of those songs, I, I'm, I'm thinking back to when we started the interview, and you talked about how, to you, a song has to be a story, has to mean something. And when you write for or with an artist like Paisley, does does that make it, I don't know, easier or does that draw out that side a little more readily because you know kind of brad's style and 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 what he's about as an artist somebody like brad is unique because he's such a songwriter first he has a very very great grasp on his own artistry and what he wants to say and who he is who he wants to be and he's a great songwriter uh we always say brad doesn't need us to write brad wrote letter to me and alcohol by himself and celebrity by himself but brad's busy being an artist and running a corporation, you know, so he has us to come in and help him think and bring him ideas and, and, and you know, co-writing, co-writing's fun. But with Brad, we spend, you know, Brad's very meticulous. We, it takes us a long time to write a song because we'll spend all night on it and he loves to start late and go to daylight. It's not for the faint of heart. You know, you'll stumble into bed at 5.45 in the morning and it, 11 o'clock, he's calling saying, man, we sucked last night. This is terrible. And you're going, oh, wow. Well, I thought it was pretty good. And we're back to the drawing board. Brad loves the rewrite. But at the same time, you're writing with the artist. And if you nail it and it's what he wants to say, there you go. And he seems, I would call him kind of an eclectic artist. You know, he does some real serious stuff. He does, as you already mentioned, he does some really funny stuff. What I like about him is... He he does funny stuff that also still makes you think. It's not like it, it's not a novelty. What I'm trying to say, um, and I think a perfect example of that is uh, I'm still a guy, which I think a lot of dudes can relate to. It's funny on one level. On the other level, it also kind of speaks to an era that we're in. Yeah, uh, Brad writes smart. Even if it's funny, it's going to be smart. He's got a great sense of humor. Um, he would be a good comedian because he. It's about the craft of the words, and it's not low-hanging fruit. When you see a deer, you see Bambi, and I see antlers up on the wall. When you see a lake, you think picnics, and I see a large mouth up under that log. You're probably thinking that you're going to change me in some ways when me up all but no matter what remember i'm still a guy i want to ask you about a song uh, i think it's one of your most recent songs uh, thought about you which tim mcgraw 
premiered uh, during the Super Bowl pregame. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I was looking at the lyrics of that song uh, and, and listening to it. And you've been in the business for a long time. And that song has a very nostalgic theme to it. So spring break on the hill, been Daytona. Boys in the back, hiding their corona like kids do. Not thought about you. Does your writing change as you get older? Do you be, or are you able to unattach yourself from your age and just write? Well, you have to. Um, again, I'm not writing for me. You have to find a way to keep the themes young because the listeners don't age in some ways. I thought about songs that make us feel better. I thought about faith that ties it all together. I thought about now and I thought about forever. I thought about fire and how we walk through it. The times I got it right, the times I blew it. Radio was always marketing towards young people. Mm-hmm. So your core demographic that the labels and the radio is trying to hit are 18 to 24. So the listener doesn't age, the writer's age and the artist's age. So we have to be aware that the themes have to kind of still stay kind of young. Now, we still have artists like McGraw and Brad and Kenny and, you know, Keith. I mean, they'll, Blake Shelton, I mean, they they will say bigger things. And you can, you know, you can George Strait. I mean, he might, you know, there's places out there with it. But as a rule, if you're sitting down just aiming for straight up, right down the middle, modern country radio, it, it better not sound like it was written by a 50-year-old. And two songs that you've written that don't, well, I guess... We, I'm 55, so 50 to me doesn't seem old anymore. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but shoot me straight, and it ain't my fault for the Brothers Osborne. Country's gotten a little bit away from the, the Southern rock thing with you know a little more R&B in there and, and pop. Both those songs come out, and they're they're both just, to me, swinging for the, the fences, and it's kind of old school. And sort of, When you wrote those songs, was there any sort of statement that you were trying to make, or was it just that, that just what you were feeling that day, and, and out they came? Because they're both great songs. They're two of my favorites of the last probably five, ten years. Those are about the idea. You know, each of, each of those was an idea, and we wrote the idea true to the idea kind of, you know, with, with no regard to any of those other things. We weren't aiming at anything. You know, we sit and wrote it with acoustic guitars. There was no drum loops or anything. It just no electric. It just, just acoustic guitars, and we're writing words and telling a story and writing melody. And um, We certainly wrote it as old school. Shoot me straight Don't give me that soft shake your red line. Don't give me that comeback chase of this time. Don't their artistry is very unique and that John is such a next level musician and then TJ has such a unique true baritone voice they're just kind of fearless so they just there was no demo on those songs they just went in and they literally created this, these magnificent records out of uh, out of these songs that we'd written and that's kind of how that's really my favorite way to do it blame my reason on my name blame my name on my reason blame 
And that will do it for this month's edition of Write You a Song. Again, brought to you in part by Songwriters City, where you can have multiple songwriters come in and perform in front of your large party or corporate event, including Lee Thomas Miller. It's a one-of-a-kind chance to get the stories behind some of the biggest, most memorable songs in country music from the people who wrote them. It's really, really awesome. You should check it out more at songwritercity.com. Write You a Song is also made possible by Bonneville Communications and New Country 105.1 KNCI Sacramento, where this whole podcast originates from. I'm Tom Maley, inviting you to join us next month when our guest is a songwriter named J.T. Harding. Put in my mind somewhere in my car and it's raining. Well, say it doesn't matter because it's going to matter to me. I can't be. Yeah, J.T. Harding wrote those and a bunch more. He's got a very interesting story, and we will hear it next month on Write You a Song. Thank you again for listening. All right, you still there? Good. We'll continue our conversation now with songwriter Lee Thomas Miller in this sort of podcast after the podcast. We're going to talk about songwriting, but not songwriting as a craft. We're going to talk about it as a job, a way to make a living. There used to be a saying in Nashville, all the really big houses belong to songwriters. And for the best of the best, that might still be true. But for the vast majority now and going forward, it's not. And in fact, they may not even be able to buy a house based on songwriting alone, even if they manage a few hits. That's because of digital streaming, which has affected songwriters in a couple of different ways. Number one, it removed album cuts as a source of revenue. In the old days, you might not write a top 10 hit, but if you have a couple songs on an album that went platinum, you were earning a percentage of every single album sold. That added up pretty quickly. But today, most people don't buy albums. Most people today buy singles, and more often than not, they stream them. And for all intent and purposes, that stream is not a revenue stream for the people who wrote the songs. It's wrong, and it's a problem, and it literally puts the entire music industry at risk. Because if you don't have songwriters, where are you going to get your songs from? So our podcast guest, Lee Thomas Miller, has been a strong advocate for songwriter rights it's a very complicated issue, one that I certainly don't understand fully. So I asked Lee if he could give us an overview on what the issue is, where it comes from, where it's at now, and whether or not it's fixable going forward. Lee is the past president of the Nashville Songwriters Association. He has been a tireless advocate for his peers and his livelihood. He's the right guy to ask. If this is an issue that, as a music fan, matters to you, then listen in for the remaining few minutes to get a clearer picture of what songwriters are up against and ask yourself, would you ever consider doing your job? for free or close to free because that's basically what it comes down to here's what lee thomas miller had to say well what people don't understand is how controlled uh, we are by the government um it, it doesn't make sense it's ludicrous but uh a physical sale of a product such as a cd or a vinyl record or whatever that was uh put under uh the safe watch of the United States government in 1909 by the Federal Copyright Act. And then radio was invented. And so by 1939, there was a big dispute over who was collecting that money. And once again, the the government intervenes. And so the Department of Justice uh, put antitrust consent decrees on the entities, ASCAP and BMI, who collect the performance money. So you've got physical sale, that's one royalty. And then you've got uh, performance royalty 
uh, anytime it's broadcast in the air in any capacity. Mm -hmm. And all of that was, uh, those rates were set by the government. One in 1909, the other in 1930 or 1941, ultimately. Um, And away we go. That stuff has changed very little since then. We are still controlled. The rates are set by the government. Almost 100% of what we make is is determined by the government. Now, piracy took away the physical sale of products. There was very little political will by the government to stop piracy. So we gave up that mechanical royalty years ago. So the only thing that keeps us in the game is old-school radio, terrestrial radio. That's where we get paid. Um, and then streaming comes along and they look at it and there's loopholes that says the government is holding our rate at an artificially low number, which was made even more minuscule by the technology of streaming. And um, companies like Pandora and Spotify were able to set up shop and exist. And basically they had access to our music for almost nothing. It's micro pennies what we get paid. So we discovered very quickly that the last income stream that we have is, is under attack. And it, it's, you know, we started watching our peers go away. They just, they just couldn't make it. In the course of about 12 years in Nashville, the professional songwriters went down. Some numbers show as, as high as 80 or 90% fewer professional songwriters. Wow. Now the business shrunk also. I mean, there's, a lot fewer labels and fewer studios and fewer musicians. I mean, it was, it was a, the, the entire ecosystem got smaller, but certainly the songwriters are the ones that just almost went extinct. So something had to be done, and we'd had some luck as an organization with the National Songwriters Association. Um, we'd had some small victories in advocacy, and then in 06, after years, we were able to pass a, a tax bill that made fixed a a tax thing that was incredibly unfair to the writers. And it was David versus Goliath. Nobody thought we could do it. And sure enough, the National Songwriters Association did it and passed a whole new tax bill on this one piece. Um, And that got us on the radar and things got more serious. We got a seat at the table. So then when it came down to this big fight towards modernizing the law, we had some friends. And then there was this godsend congressman from uh, North Georgia named Congressman Doug Collins, and uh, he was on the right committee, and he had the right personal reason to do it, and he stepped up and he made it his his baby. And it's the Federal Music Modernization Act, right? The, the Music Modernization Act, and it took the better part of six years. I testified before both houses, countless testimonies and sit-downs and and, and most of the meetings were incredibly hard and not well-received, but we just wouldn't stop, and we got it passed. It's going to take a little time to know exactly what it means for the future because it's all too complicated. But over the last 18 months, we got two or three major, major league victories that at least gives the next generation a chance at doing this. I think anybody would say offering up their services for free is ludicrous. And yet that is kind of the position that songwriters have been put in. It's always a problem. You know, we do a lot of, uh, you know, in Nashville, the whole uh, acoustic songwriter round is very popular. You know, two or three of us sit down and 
you take turns, you tell the story behind the song, and then we sing our version of it. It's very popular. And as Nashville's grown, people come and they see it, and we get these corporate jobs. We'll go around the country and we'll do this, and we'll tell the whole deal. And uh, we get called a lot. And what's amazing is you'll get – I had this conversation this morning about this very similar thing. You'll have a, hey, will you come play our convention? Okay. Well, we can't pay you, but we'll give you dinner and a hotel. And my wife pointed this out years ago, and I use it all the time. I'm like, is the caterer doing it for free? Well, no. Is the hotel giving you the convention space for free? No. Well, you think that would be ludicrous. I bet the sound people didn't even do it for free, did they? But you think the songwriters, you think we would do it for free because it's an honor to sing for you. This is the exact problem we have with songwriting. Everybody thinks that it's free. So it goes all the way to the top, all the way to getting paid. Nobody really understands that we're professionals. Well, and I know, I know people, uh, friends of mine, who think that the, the artists pay you. Yeah. Or the labels. And some of that's that's fair. I mean, there's no reason that somebody outside of the business would have any concept of the way it works. People are usually horrified when they find out what the numbers actually are. <laughs> Most people say, why would anybody do this? Well, if you have a hit, I mean, the money can be pretty good. There's certainly a thrill to succeeding in anything in the art field. And it also gets back to what you started this interview with. It, it, this is who you are. You, you don't have a plan B. This is it. This is your DNA. Yeah, and that was a... a trial held a couple years ago and for one little piece of again i mean we we go to major battles just to change one little one little nuance of one of the royalty streams and there's this one royalty stream that the judges ultimately gave us a 44 percent increase in based on this trial and in that it's federal court and I, i told those judges um Standing in front of an army of Google attorneys, I told the judges, I said, look, you know, we uh, we make a decision to do this for a living when we're young, you know, and uh, the, the ships sail on everything else. And we are years and years learning the craft before we ever even know if we're good enough to succeed. But we all come into this willing to accept that we might not be good enough. That's that's the risk of doing business, and that's fine. And if we fail because the competition's too stiff or we lack the ability or whatever, um, then that's on us. But for us to come into this and do all of that and learn it and succeed, and it is no longer a way to make a living – because the federal government says that we don't get to keep any of the money, that's unacceptable because somebody is making a lot of money. You all are taking what we do. You are running a multi-billion dollar music business, and everybody else is getting paid except the people that wrote the song, and we made it up out of thin air. That is not fair. See, like I said, very complicated issue, but definitely one to keep in mind, especially because if you're a music lover, we kind of need songwriters around. 
If you want to find out more about the issue, go to the Nashville Songwriters Association website. It's simply NashvilleSongwriters.com, NashvilleSongwriters.com, and you can find out more there. Again, thank you to Lee Thomas Miller for being our guest today. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next month on Write You a Song.